All right, let's go Psalm 75. Psalm 75. If you don't have a Bible, we will have the text up on the screens behind me in just a little bit. We also have some physical Bibles scattered around the room in the little uh, racks beneath the seats. If you don't own a Bible of your very own, we say this every week, we say it for a reason, we would invite you to take that physical one home. The reason for that is really, really simple. It's just, just do the math in your head real quick. All right. We believe that God uses his word for all kinds of important things, but the biggest, the most important, the most beautiful, the most lovely of all the good things is that he uses it to reveal himself to his people. Like to know God is to be changed by God. And, and so uh, if you don't have a copy of God's word, then it puts you at a disadvantage. You're, you're in the hole on that and getting to know him. And so uh, we want to fix that. If you don't have a Bible, take that one home. Um, I've got some, uh, we're starting to build up a couple in the lost and found. So I got prettier ones if you don't want the hardcovers. Uh, you just scratch somebody else's name off, but it, it's fine. All right. All right. So we've got this little effort uh, that we, we've, we've got in our hands, these little um, mini-seasons, if you want to call them that, of pressing into the Psalms. Uh, we've been in and out of them several times now over the last uh, few years, uh, and so we'll hit two or three at a time here, and maybe seven or eight at a time there, and slowly we're kind of making our way through the whole Psalter. Uh, and we finished a major series back in mid-July, and it, Lord willing, it's our plan to uh, do something new in September, and so we've kind of been been hanging out in the Psalms for the last uh, four weeks, last few weeks, uh, trying to knock some more of them off the list. That's, that's as simple of the plan as I can make the plan. All right? uh, and so uh, in the event that you haven't been here, I know most of us have, uh, but for those of you who are the visitor types, all right? um, and so the Psalms are a special thing. They're a real special thing. Uh, you've got to read them and teach them differently, or at least in a different manner than most of the rest of the Bible. And what I mean by that is that the Psalms are not trying to be didactic. All right? They're not trying to, to, to teach, as, at least as their primary purpose. All right? Instruction is there. It's clearly there. Every word of the Bible is profitable for teaching and for training in righteousness, right? But the Psalms are poetry, which means that that instruction is usually beneath a surface layer of a lot of emotions. All right? That's what's going on in the Psalms. You've got to dig through the, the chaos that's going on in the head and the heart of the psalm writer in order to get down into the instruction. And so I like to explain it this way. Rather than prescriptively doing what the writer did, because sometimes it's not so great, the psalms are more about empathetically feeling what the writer felt. All right? They're an invitation into the hearts and minds of God's people as they are experiencing something, certain things. And, and, and while our culture uh, may have a lot of differences uh, between our culture and theirs, I mean, we're separated by about, like almost 3,000 years in most of these cases. All right? That's a lot of different. That's a whole lot of different. All right? Human nature, though, isn't all that different. We struggle with the same exact sin-bent hearts that the psalm writers did. We live in the same exact sin-broken world. Yes, cultures are different, but the world's just as broken as it was back in their day. And so regardless of the time and the cultural distinctions between us, it's not hard at all to, to kind of walk through the Psalms and feel like the psalm writers have all been like snooping around and reading your diary. All right? They know what's going on because they've lived the same kind of things that we live. I think that they truly get us and they give voice to some honest things rolling around in our heads that we, let's be honest here, are often too timid to let rise to the surface. Am I wrong about that? And while I tend to be the more cerebral type, while I prefer a clear logical flow and then a very, very, very clear plan of action, go do this, the Psalms don't do that. But rather than being frustrated at them, I think I'm coming to love them. 
I think I'm coming to love the Psalms because, I don't know, I, I feel like I need, a, they're, not, they're not too concerned with the filter. And we live in a world that's full of filters, right? At least that's been my world. So I feel like I need more and more and more of the Psalms in my life. And so you ready to get into our Psalm for the day? Psalm 75. We've got another superscript. If you're wondering, not every psalm has a superscript. About a third of them don't. Uh, Garrett, I don't know if I put that in there, but it's probably in Dropbox. No? I don't know. We'll figure it out. All right, so you'll probably need a physical Bible for this today. All right. Not all of the psalms have a superscript. About a third of them don't. Uh, but it just so happens that today we've got the mother of all superscripts. All right. Uh, it's got five parts to it. You ready to look at it? All right. Psalm 75. Those of you with a physical Bible will see what's, exa- what's going on here. And, uh, well, our presentation software can't seem to figure that part out. All right. It says, To the choir master, according to Do Not Destroy, a psalm of Asaph, a song. All right, so there's a lot to digest there, right? There's a whole bunch going on. But we can start with the simple stuff. At the very end, we're told that it's both a psalm and a song, which are, last time I checked, Pretty much two words for the same thing. So, uh, I mean, there's some nuance there. The, the psalm writer does uh, use two different Hebrew words. A song is just a, a regular you know, piece of music that would, you, know, you would sing it or you'd play it with an instrument or both. Or, uh, and a psalm is a song specifically intended for worshiping a deity. So there's the nuance. But a psalm is just a song intended for worshiping a deity. That's all the difference. So why is there a slightly nuanced repetition there? Hey, look. I see I made the slide this time. All right. Why is there this slightly nuanced repetition? Well, we're not really sure, to be honest. There doesn't seem to be a clear reason, uh, at least not to those of us sitting here 3,000-ish years later. It may have something to do with the style, how the song is played and sung, but we just don't really honestly know. All right? But there are some other things that are very, very, very clear. We're told that this psalm slash song is addressed to the choir master, right? And that's a note that's been rung over and over again in this little mini version of the psalm series. Over the last several weeks, we've struck that chord a lot. This makes three psalms in four weeks that have all been addressed to the choir master. But don't worry. I know, I know you're super worried that one of these days we're going to run out of psalms addressed to the choir master. We won't, all right? Because uh, a little over a third of the psalms are all address to whoever this person is we've been over this several times now over the last few weeks but in case you haven't been around all that much the choir master is the person who is in charge of leading the congregational worship for the nation of israel that's who they are so what does that mean well, it means that this is a, a, a song addressed to him is really a song addressed to the nation not just to him it's addressed to everyone It's a song that's written with a very, very intentional purpose. We're not just talking about a poetic moment uh, of private musings that someone thought would be important to save for a future collection of something. No, we're talking about a songwriter intentionally crafting some music and handing it to the guy in charge with the full knowledge that God's people would gather together into one spot and sing it as a public act. The writer is intentionally putting words in the mouth of the congregation in order to shape how they worship. But we've already covered all all that ground in previous weeks, so what what else can we learn about 
the psalm from the superscript. Well, we're also told who the author is, right? Who is it? Asaph. That's a fun name. Anybody got a kid coming? Like, I think maybe you ought to think about Asaph. He was a cool guy. So who's Asaph? Well, according to 1 Chronicles 6, he was one of these choir master figures. David appoints several men to serve as musicians and singers, and Asaph is listed as one of those guys. But it gets better. He's not just in the list. By the time you get to chapter 16 of 1 Chronicles, when the Ark of the Covenant is being brought in and the band is supposed to strike up this grand note, Asaph is listed there as the chief. But it's much later, much, much later in 2 Chronicles 29, that we learn the most interesting thing about Asaph, roughly 300 years after he's dead and gone, King Hezekiah calls him a seer. In other words, a prophet. Asaph has his name attached to 12 of the Psalms, which is more than any other guy not named King David. All right? And all of Asaph's Psalms, all 12 of them, have to do with future judgment of God. This one included. All of them. Asaph is going to get into some stuff here in a moment. It's going to be pretty. All right? But there's this one last thing here in the superscript that we've got to address, and it's, part of, it's the part that's probably got, you know, causing the most questions for people going, hey, what's that mean? All right? uh, it, it says, according to what? Do not destroy. So what do we do with that? Well, it's been a while, but we've actually already talked about this very thing. All right? It's been a couple of years since we talked about it, and some of you haven't been around that long, and so we've got to talk about it now. Uh, a couple of years ago when we looked at Psalm 57, uh, Psalm 57 says the exact same thing going on, according to do not destroy. And we said then that there are a lot of opinions kind of swirling around about what people think that that means. There are some really, really smart people out there who argue that it's most likely a personal name. All right? Really smart people. All right? uh, and, and in the English, that idea sounds really weird, but in the Hebrew, it makes a lot more sense uh, for a couple of reasons. First of all, the words according to in the English don't exist in the Hebrew text. They're just not there. All right? uh, that's something that English translators add to the, the, the written words so that we go, oh, that's what they're saying. According to is just inserted there because it's assumed there. All right? But it's not actually in the Hebrew. All right? Secondly, do not destroy is all one word in the Hebrew. Al-shihet. And that would not have been a crazy idea for a name in that culture. You could totally probably find somebody named Al-Shihet running around the marketplace somewhere. And so some really smart, Jesus-loving people look at that and argue that Asaph, as a former choir master, is actually identifying the name of the current choir master when he's writing this song. Sounds pretty smart. Okay. It is possible. But I'm not in that camp. And here's why. It's because there are a lot of other examples in the Psalms of incredibly similar scenarios. Places where the superscript says, according to, and then it gives some incredibly poetic sounding name. Case in point, Psalm 56 is addressed to the choir master according to the dove on far off terebinths. Psalm 22 is addressed to the choir master according to the doe of the dawn. Same deal as here, according to, not in the Hebrew text. It's placed in there by translators. And so we're either constantly changing choir masters here, and all of them have incredibly poetic names, or just spitballing, there's another reasonable explanation. And so some other really, really smart, Jesus loving people 
look at Psalm 75 and other texts like it and argue that it's probably identifying the name of an incredibly familiar song that everybody already knows. That everybody already, already knows the tune of. And, and because they already know the tune of that song, they've got a head start on learning this song. And we did the exact same thing this morning. Did you catch it? All glory be to Christ. What's that to the tune of? Old Lang Syne, right? Let it be known that God's people have been doing this kind of stuff for our entire existence. All right? We just rob our own stuff over and over and over again. Ain't nothing new under the sun. So we've got the superscript handled, all right? So we, we, got, we got to the choir master, according to Do Not Destroy. We know it's a psalm of Asaph, a song, all right? So what about the actual text of Asaph's song? Well, let's get into it. Verse 1. It says, We give thanks to you, O God. We give thanks, for your name is near. We recount your wondrous deeds. All right, so in addition to the last several psalms uh, all being addressed to the choir master, or most of them being addressed to the choir master, it's also true that all four of the psalms that we've looked at so far have been laments, sad songs. But that's not the case today. You're welcome. We got one of the happy ones. Yeah! It's a sunny day, boys! Oh, but wait a second, Stephen. I, I thought, I, didn't you say a while ago that all of Asaph's psalms, and this is one of Asaph's psalms, didn't you say that all of Asaph's psalms are about the future judgment of the Lord? Yeah, yeah, I did. And there is a kind of circumstance where that coming judgment is seen and rightly celebrated as a good thing. Welcome to that circumstance. See, when you're surrounded by a bunch of bad guys and when you're on the receiving end of injustice after injustice after injustice, the final judgment of the Lord is something that you begin to look forward to with longing in your eyes. And the prophet slash former chief musician slash singer-songwriter Asaph, he's calling the congregation of Israel to long for and to celebrate that future coming day. In verse 1, speaking directly to God, he leads the congregation to thank him in advance for what he is going to do one day by remembering and celebrating what he has already done in the past. He says, we recount your wondrous deeds, right? But Asaph turns the volume up. In verse 2, he goes to full prophet mode. He begins speaking with God's own voice in verse 2. Look at it. It says, at the set time that I appoint, I will judge with equity. And I got a call time out there. Now I wish, I really, really wish uh, that you know that I could keep reading that moment because the flow of that thought carries all the way down through uh, verse five. But we just saw a word that I think gets twisted into knots uh, by the culture uh, that we live in. So I, I, I'm forced to stop and talk about it. It's the word equity, right? Did y'all catch that word? You know how I make a frequent practice in here about talking about how, how there are words with biblical definitions that are not at all what our culture has turned that word into? Does that ever come up around here with me? It comes up quite often, right? Uh, whether it's born out of laziness or born out of malice, the word has come to mean something, that, uh, something other than what past generations clearly, obviously used that word to say, all right? And usually uh, that's, that 
something other is less beautiful and less powerful than the original meaning of the word. The word that we frequently you know, give the most attention to around here is the word love, right? That's the one I pick on all the time. Uh, but in the last several years, we cover, covered other words like sin, slavery, kindness, judging, the fear of the Lord. They all get twisted into all kinds of weird knots, right? But equity is different. Equity is different because instead of some kind of vague shift that happened years and years ago that nobody really paid attention to and all of a sudden we just, it was on us, I think we're actually watching the word equity shift definitions in our own day. I think we're watching it be redefined right before our eyes. As I personally, this is my own, my own look at the world, as I personally watch what's going on around me more and more often, I'm seeing people in our culture use the word equity to mean an equality of outcome. Meaning that people come out of an issue or out of a situation on an equal footing. And perhaps you have some really, really intelligent reason for believing that that's a good thing. I've got my own opinions about that, but I'm not here to make a judgment on that, that as an issue. What drives me up an absolute wall, though, is that if people would simply open up an actual dictionary, like one with a cover on it that was printed more than about 10 years ago, if people would open up an actual dictionary, they would learn that that's not at all what the word equity means. Not at all. Up until just a few years ago, equity was about judging something with equal standards. It's about showing impartiality instead of applying different measurements based on a desired outcome. And so I have personally, personally been in a situation or multiple situations where I've watched people with a straight face use the word equity to argue for something that is literally the exact opposite of what the word equity is supposed to mean. So what does any of that have to do with Psalm 75 though? Well, it shows that we need to be insanely careful about not reading our own culture back into what the Bible says about God. You follow me on this? Speaking in God's own voice, Asaph says that God will one day judge with equity. But he does not mean it the way that some of your HR departments might mean it. And he does not mean it in some of the way that the talking heads on your favorite politics show might mean it. No, what Asaph means by that is that God is the perfect judge because he is unquestionably and incorruptibly fair. From eternity past through eternity till to come, there has never been a moment and there will never be a moment when God will think to himself, you know, I really like that guy. I'm going to judge by a different standard here. There's never been a moment and there will never be a moment when God will think to himself, you know, I think that one had a really, really tough go of things, so I'm going to open up the pathway. There's never been a moment and there will never be a moment when God as perfect judge is vulnerable to manipulation or vulnerable to bribery or vulnerable to extortion. No, there is coming a day when he will judge the world and his judgment will be perfectly equitable. Even his opponents, those on the receiving end of his righteous judgment will not have opportunity to cry foul because it will be clear and obvious to all that the judge is righteous and he has done what is exactly right. At the right time that I appoint, Asaph says. Speaking in God's own words, at the right time that I appoint, I will judge with equity. But perfect impartiality is not the only attribute of God as the perfect judge. Still speaking in God's voice, Asaph continues on in verse 3, or verse 2, excuse me. No, verse 3, yeah. It says, when the earth totters and all its inhabitants it is I who keep steady its pillars, Selah. I say to the boastful, do not boast. And to the wicked, do not lift up your horn. 
Do not lift up your horn on high or speak with haughty neck. So as Christians, we believe that two things are true all at the same time, right? And so one, we believe that the earth spins on its own axis in an orbit around the sun and that it's just fast enough in that spin and that rotation to keep the, that rotation stable and to keep us in that solar orbit, all right? We believe that to be absolutely true. But also two, we also believe that if God were to ever decide to stop actively holding the world together, there's no more world, If one day he says, I'm done, it's done. Oh, but aren't those two things in conflict with each other? No, not even a little bit. Colossians 1.17, he is before all things and in him all things hold together. The Bible teaches that Jesus is both the one who set things into motion for his glory and the one who is actively holding all things together for his glory. We teach both. So what does that have to do with God as the future impartial judge of all things? Well, it's easy. Not all of his judgments are a future reality. Some of his judgments are actively going on right now. You ever been in a situation when you were trying to do a good thing and no one else noticed? How'd you, how'd you feel about that? Even worse, maybe people did notice and they reviled you for the good thing. You ever been in a situation like that? I've been in lots of situations like that. I'm a dad. Of course I've been. We all have. We haven't. Church, it is good news. It is incredibly good news that our God is not the type of God who will throw his hands up and walk away. there, There have been some moments in my life where I've thrown my hands up and walked away. Sometimes, Oftentimes, I make the problem much, much worse. God's never done that. He's not doing that. When when the earth totters and all its inhabitants, it is I who keep the pillars. And the psalm writer says, Selah. We haven't talked about it yet in in this kind of run of our psalm series. We're not, we're not totally sure what the word Selah means. We just guess on that. But our most educated guess is that it's a musical term that means to rest, right? We, we, you know, if you've been hanging out in church for longer than 20 minutes, you've come across that before. Um, it's a call to stop and dwell, we think, on the reality of, of whatever that truth was before you rush on to the next truth. In other words, don't fly past this without taking an intentional second to chew on it a little bit. Even as the boastful continue in their boasting. Even as the wicked continue in their wickedness. It is the active and loving patience of God that leads him to keep this world spinning instead of throwing up his hands and walking off. Dwell on that for a second. Yes, the perfect judge is impartial. But listen, church, he is also unfathomably gracious. To patiently continue blessing, even as he warns the boastful and the wicked to repent. Oh man, what a judge is he. What a judge is he. He is a steady hand. And and to be sure, he will not let the guilty go unpunished. But in his infinite kindness, he patiently allows time for sinners to repent. And last time I checked, man, I'm the kind of sinner who needs a lot of time. How about you? 
The one who actively keeps the earth from tottering has a word for sinners. He says, do not lift up your horn. Do not lift up and speak with a haughty neck, which I'll admit is a really confusing sentence if you don't have a lot of background with the Old Testament. All right. Um, so what, what are those two things? Well, all throughout the Bible, especially in things talking about God's judgment, horns are, are something that always kind of represents someone's power, especially the power of the bad guys. And so think, you know, horns that it can attack those who don't have horns. All right, that's, that's the word picture going on. God basically tells them, hey, I'm watching what you're doing here. I know I'm actively holding your world together right now, but don't forget, I'm not distracted. I see you. I see you. I know how you handle the power that you possess. Not, not taking your own future judgment into account. You sure you want to do it that way? But that's not all. He also tells them to not speak with a, with a haughty neck. So what's that about? Well, for starters, it's not haughty, H-O-T-T-I-E. That's a word that we awkwardly use in our culture. But haughty as in sinfully proud. Add to that the neck part, all throughout the Old Testament, Israel's repeatedly called a stiff-necked people because of their unwillingness to be directed by God. Think of a cow in a halter being led around and it refuses to budge. It refuses to be turned to the right or the left because it has obstinately made its neck stiff. It can't be turned. It doesn't matter what's good for them. It doesn't matter that the farmer is leading them to a really, really good thing. The cow will not be moved and it's nothing but their own obstinance that's to blame. God tells these prideful, stiff-necked people that he's watching what's going on here. Listen, I know I'm actively holding your world together, but I'm not distracted. I see you. I know how you continue to run your mouth, never taking into account the future judgment that you are adding to your own pile, adding to your account. The clear intent here is for the wicked and the boastful to be warned. But Asaph comes down from speaking in God's own voice. In verse 6, he transitions and he begins speaking about God once again. Look at it. It says, For not from the east or from the west, and not from the wilderness comes lifting up, but it is God who executes judgment, putting down one and lifting up another. So Asaph uses the same lifting up language as he saw with the bad guys, but he makes it clear here that God is the one who is in charge of lifting up. Rather than haughtily lifting up our own horns and stiff necks, God is the one who is in charge of lifting up people. Favor doesn't blow in on the wind from the east or the west. It's not found in some kind of unknown location buried deep in the wilderness. No, God gives favor and God withholds favor. He's the one who lifts up and he's the one who brings down. It is his judgment that is the deciding factor. It's not random. It's not chance. No, he's in charge. And that's really, really good news because we've already learned that he's perfectly impartial and incredibly patient. That's really good news. You think you could be a better judge than him? Think I got that in me? I like to believe sometimes I got that in me, but I don't have that in me. Not only am I not strong enough to keep the world from tottering, I don't have that kind of I don't have the ability to pull that off. But I'd also make the most terrible judge ever, right? I mean, can we just be honest about that? You probably already know. You see me. What about you? We lack any discernible level of patience and equity. We go south for us right out of the gate. And that's just the positive stuff. That's just dishing out the good things. 
How do you think it'd go when it came time to, to deal with the bad things? You going to handle that well? Verse 8 deals with judging the bad guys. It says, For in the hand of the Lord there is a cup with foaming wine well mixed, and he pours out from it, and all the wicked of the earth shall drain it down to the dregs. What a cute little promise. Right? Doesn't that just give you a bunch of warm and fuzzy feelings about our God? What a picture, man. Like a cup of foaming, well-mixed wine. How many of you shook up your wine really hard this week? What's that about? Well, over and over and over again throughout the Old Testament, we see this picture of the cup of God's wrath. Right? Psalm 23 describes a cup of God's blessing as well, but you're talking about one time in an avalanche of negative examples. We flew right past it a couple of weeks ago in Psalm 11, but it's also in several other places in the Psalms. You see it in the book of Job when he's, he and God are kind of arguing back and forth about whether or not the wicked will ever finally be judged. We see it in the prophet Isaiah. We see it all over the book of Jeremiah. And you see it, a couple of an important, you see it in a couple of really, really important places in the book of Revelation. Right? The picture that's being painted here is that sin is not merely being noted. It's not merely being noted. But that every drop of the wrath it rightly deserves is being caught, it's being collected, and being stored up and saved for a future moment of being poured out on the guilty. And all the wicked of the earth shall drain it down to the dregs. Not a single drop of this wrath will be lost. And so the question emerges, the obvious question, I think. Have, have you added to the cup? Have you personally contributed sin to the wrath that is being stored up for a future moment of being poured out in judgment? It's an incredibly sober question and it demands an incredibly sober answer, right? What do you personally deserve from the perfectly impartial judge who so far has been unfathomably patient towards you? What is to become of you on the day when the perfect judge finally takes his seat and makes his righteous ruling? And some of you may be thinking right, right about now, like, what kind of psycho would ever call this a happy psalm, right? Why isn't this one one of the bad ones? Where does Asaph get off celebrating judgment like that? That's kind of weird. Well, there are a couple of reasons why this is good news. I referenced the first one at the start of our time together. Um, those who have been on the receiving end of injustice long desperately for the day when God will, when the perfectly impartial judge will finally make all things right. Um, that, that, that'll be a really, really, really good day. I look forward to that day. Anybody telling you otherwise probably is worried about their injustice that they're about to be accountable for. But there's a second really, really important reason why the promised cup of wrath on the wicked is good news. And it's because there was once another time when Jesus was in the middle of a garden and he pleaded with the Father to let this cup pass from him, and the Father told him no. Church family, the gospel is that despite our status as the boastful, and despite our status as the wicked, and despite our status as the haughty and stiff-necked, the perfectly righteous judge stepped into the world that he is actively holding together, and he took the punishment owed to us upon himself. 
He drank our cup of foaming, well-mixed wine, and he drank it all the way down to the dregs. If you know him, church, there is not a single drop left for you. It's gone. It's gone. Now, does Asaph know when he wrote that, that, that the Messiah was going to come and do exactly that? I don't, I don't know. I don't know. Maybe not. He was a prophet. We don't know exactly what God allowed him to see. But what we do know is this, and I think, I think we can, he trusts completely, is that God is faithful to those who belong to him, period. And that in being rightly united to God by grace through faith, we are saved. Not because God's people haven't added wrath to the cup, because we haven't contributed our own sin to the, the judgment that's being stored up. We certainly have. I know I have. But our God is good and he is mighty to save. And he is actively drawing men and women into his kingdom through no merit of their own. Which is why in verses 9 and 10, Asaph turns the corner and starts celebrating in a big way. Look at it. It says, but I will declare it forever. I will sing praises to the God of Jacob. All the horns of the wicked I will cut off, but the horns of the righteous shall be lifted up. Church, there is a layer of the impending wrath of God that ought to be seen as a tragedy. It really ought. Judgment is surely coming for the wicked, and it will not be pretty. To speak honestly about what the Bible says, we need to lay it all, lay all the cards on the table. It will be a dark day for the wicked. But there is also a layer where the impending wrath of God ought to be met with joy-filled celebration because Jesus has soaked up every ounce that you deserve. And so let the party begin. It is good and it is right to celebrate the impartial judge who took the penalty upon himself. So, so, so where's the line between tragedy and joy then? It's as clear a line as there can be. It's in actually knowing Jesus. The line between tragedy and joy is in actually knowing Jesus. That's the watershed. If you're here this morning and you're not a follower of him yet, you can do something about that today. The Bible teaches that because of our sin, we are all separated relationally from God, that we are owed the just and right punishment for sin, the overflowing cup of God's wrath. But the Bible also teaches, just as clearly teaches, that God is rich in mercy and that he loves us with an incredibly great love, that even when we are spiritually dead in our trespasses and sins, he makes us alive again through the grace of Christ. The eternal Son of God put on flesh and He dwelt among us. He lived the sinless life that I can't live and you can't live. He died on a cross as an innocent substitute to make full and final payment for your sin. There's not a drop left. He was raised again from the dead as a vindication of His own perfect and sufficient righteousness. And now He stands victoriously over Satan's sin and death, over the grave. He calls on you to respond to Him in repentance and faith, to turn away from your sin and to turn to Him as Savior and Lord. And you can do that this morning. You can respond to Jesus. Man, I'd love to be helpful to you. Let's talk. But what about those of us who are already followers of Jesus? How, how should we respond this morning? Same as we do every single week, we repent of sin and we lean into what God is revealing about himself in the text. And this week, I think that leaning in probably ought to take the shape of celebration. Our God is unquestionably fair. He is unfathomably patient. He is actively holding the universe together and he will one day set right every single injustice. But listen, as wonderful as those things really are, 
Greater still is the reality that he claims you as his own. That he gladly took every drop of the judgment and justice owed to you upon himself. And so we ought to get busy declaring it forever to steal Asaph's words. Let us sing praises to the God of Jacob today. I'm going to pray and we're going to sing. that. That's, that's why we do that. Our, our boy Asaph is pretty smart. We should heed his call this morning. But listen, maybe you're here today and you need to respond in some other kind of way. Maybe, maybe it's, you've been here for a while and it's time to formally join our, our church family. We can, we can talk about that. Or maybe you've been following Jesus for a little bit, but you've never been obedient to his command to be baptized. We can talk about that too. We can do something about it. Or maybe God's placing some call on your heart and life to, to be a part of taking the gospel somewhere far away from here, especially somewhere that it isn't so prevalent yet. Man, I'd love to help you think through what those next steps are. But whoever you are, and however God's word is calling you to respond today, let's all respond together right now. Father, you're good to us. Thank you for the scriptures. Thank you for Psalm 75. Thank you for celebration psalms about judgment. Well, we thank you that you are a God who is perfectly equitable. You are not a moving target. You are righteous and good and fair and lovely. <laughs> and, and despite our status as those who continue to try to distance ourselves from your, you and your goodness, you draw us to you. And you make us yours. God, thank you that we can look forward to the day when all the brokenness in us and all the brokenness in this world will finally be repaired. And that we get to be with you forever. Father, for those in here who don't know you yet, though, would you draw them out of judgment and into relationship? Would you call men and women to yourself today for the glory of your name? We love you. Thank you for loving us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.